The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome, my guest today, John Corr, C.L. Mitchell, joining me as usual. And uh, we are reviewing Genesis. We are now in the post-fall narrative stage. Uh, We reviewed uh, last week Genesis 4, and we are entering into Genesis 5 today. Gentlemen, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I believe, John, that you are going to begin this program today by uh, providing our listeners with a brief uh, review of Genesis 5. Sure. Uh, Genesis 4, of course, is the next chapter after the fall, after the sin in the Garden of Eden. And we meet Cain and Abel, who are uh, sons of Adam and Eve. And from what we have in Genesis 3, the first sin here, now we have is the first murder. And Cain and Abel approach God in uh, an act of worship. And uh, apparently God uh, accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. Because his heart was not, uh, his attitude is not right. And Cain, of course, uh, murdered his brother Abel. And uh, he uh, uh, comes to God, or God comes to him asking what had happened. And of course, uh, the same way that he did with Adam and Eve asking where they were, Cain um, gives uh, excuses as far as uh, where his brother Abel is. And of course, God knows what was, what was going on. Cain is punished, actually, uh, he is cursed, uh, and whereas Adam was uh, was not cursed, but the ground was cursed, now Cain is going to be cursed because uh, he will be a wanderer, a vagrant, uh, wandering uh, for the rest of his life, and every time he tries to toil the soil, it will not work. Uh, and Cain gives, uh, asks God for protection, which God uh, does do, and he promises to protect Cain. Uh, from any way taking vengeance on him. What's interesting about chapter 4 is that <clears throat> it begins with the murderer and it ends with uh, one of Cain's descendants, Lamech or, or Lamech, becoming even a greater murderer than Cain was. And then in actual fact, we may want to just continue that uh, before we start chapter 5, talking about Lamech. Sure, okay. Who would like to come in on that one? <clears throat> And just, and just so our listeners know, uh, C.L. Mitchell is uh, dreadfully ill, and uh, he's making funny faces right now. <laughs> and uh, uh, you may not be able to hear him at, at, at times, but C.L., you carry on. Why, thank you, David. We yeah. have the ambulance outside, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Paramedics are standing by. <laughs> My fatal illness and I will be just fine, thank you. <laughs> um in, in chapter number three, one is left with a question. And that question is, what is the efficacy? What are the ramifications of sin? Is sin really as bad as God has depicted it to be? Uh, the warning given in chapter number two 
is it really to be taken as seriously uh, as as one might think? Uh, um, this this death that is discussed in the day that you eat of this tree, you will die. Well, of course, physiological death for Adam would take place at the age of nine hundred thirty years. But he and Eve, uh, uh, at the consummation of chapter number three, or before you even get to the end of chapter number three, are really removed from the garden. But they haven't physically passed away. To be sure, there is a separation from the presence of God in a unique way uh, so that they are no longer able to entertain the express effulgence of the presence of God walking, as it were, um, through the garden in the cool of the day with them. And I'm assuming that the the next real character in the Bible to to be that close to God is Jesus. Uh, the the next person that's going to be close enough to God in that area is actually going to be um, uh, Moses. Um, he's going to ask to see the glory of God. Abraham is going to have a close interaction with God, so as to be called the friend of God. Uh, he's actually going to have a. Um, uh, Christophany uh, in the form of a theophany. He's going to have a visible appearance uh, where he's going to interact with um, uh, God. Jacob is going to say that uh, he's going to name a place Penuel because he sees the face of God and did, did not die. But that up-close personal interaction is going to be reserved in a unique way uh, for Moses, whereas he talked with other prophets by visions or by dreams or things of that nature. Uh, he's going to speak with Moses, as the text says, face to face. And even at that, it was uh, uh, with the protection of a rock. Uh, Jesus Christ will have an interaction uh, uh, with the Father that is unique because he proceeds from the very bosom of the Father. Uh, John's Gospel would write that he is pros, he is face-to-face or toward the Father from all eternity past. So he's certainly going to have a unique interaction with the Father that no other can claim. But this kind of interaction that occurred in the garden, uh, we'll see some semblances of this later on. We'll see maybe the interaction in the tabernacle with the people of God. We'll see the interaction with the people of God at the temple. We'll see the interaction in the New Testament with the people of God who will become the temple of God so that the Holy Spirit will actually dwell within them. But this is a unique scenario where God is walking in the middle of his people, and this will not ultimately and finally be realized until literally God will, in Revelation, dwell with his people uh, in the new temple, if you will. Uh, but but what we're looking at here is uh, we're looking at the efficacy of sin. And uh, in looking at the effects of sin, is it as horrible as it has been said to be? Well, uh, no sooner do, than you step out of chapter number three, do you step into chapter number four and you see this horrendous, might I add, premeditated murder. Uh, the first murder is not incidental. It's not accidental. It's not coincidental. It's preplanned. Yeah, not, not only that, you have it's, – it's a murder of uh, – there's jealousy. There's anger. There's a murder of your own brother, uh, Cain against, obviously against Abel. There's a lying about it, a cover-up, a denial of responsibility. And then, of course, when God says, you know, that you're cursed, Cain you know, cries to God and says, well, this is too much for me to bear. You know, they're going to kill me. Uh, and so it's kind of you have, you have the, the, the guilty party pleading for God's mercy, which, in fact, he does give, which is interesting. He gives his grace uh, to Cain to allow him to live. We, we see the Garden of Eden, and then we see uh, Adam and Eve – 
as you say, move out of the Garden of Eden, and now they're not close to God. And yet uh, you see this murder, you see this uh, ego of man, you see this, this, uh, <clears throat> this uh, almost evil of man come out. Uh, of this of this son of Cain and a- of Adam and Eve, what? Why is it then that that could occur in the human being outside of the Garden of Eden, and yet in it, you still had the problem. You still had uh, um, Eve take this move, uh, um, incited, um, you know, by the by the devil almost. So, so you, you've got the same problems in both places. Well, here's what you have. Outside of the garden, you have a fallen nature now that is within mankind. Uh, Adam is going to reproduce after his kind so that what he's going to be upon the fall is an individual possessing, possessing a nature, a habit, and a characteristic that is antithetical or opposite or opposed to the character of God and to the law of God and to the will of God. He did not possess that in the garden. Therein lies the uniqueness of the garden because he's not fallen and Eve's not fallen as yet. So what happens in the garden? Well, Eve makes a a decision having been persuaded through trickery to eat of uh, the tree that she was not supposed to eat of. And she goes opposite of God, thinking somehow that God has withheld good from her. But now consider Adam, because the text of Scripture says the woman was deceived, not Adam. And according to the way that the Hebrew is structured and the language naturally reads in the narrative or in the story, it appears that Adam knew full well what he was doing. And without a fallen nature, being with the woman, number one, he doesn't even speak up. He's not being the authority at guard that he's supposed to be. Secondarily, not only does he not speak up, he makes a decision to side with his wife and decide um, adverse to God or opposed to God. And he's not deceived. He's, he's not tricked. No one is twisting his arm. And so without that fallen nature, mankind or Adam chooses opposite of God. Uh, so, so, notwithstanding, the responsibility, the accountability is on both Adam and Eve equally. The premier responsibility lay on Adam because he was designed first. He was the leader. He was given the head position. What's more is in Romans chapter 5, verse number 12, the text of Scripture says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon us all because all have sinned. Literally, what the text of Romans is arguing is sin entered via one man who made a decision to oppose God in his own heart. It's interesting in chapter 3, and it was supposed to be in chapter 4, but chapter 3, when God goes out and searches for Adam... <coughs> And Eve, he says, where are you? And the word is singular in the, in the Hebrew. It's singular, like, where are you, Adam? Uh, I was, and, and, of course, Adam responds. Um, Adam, of course, willingly uh, chooses to, 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 uh, to, to sin against God. Um, and he is the one who's held responsible because he is the first, you know, he's like, he's the protector of Eve. He should have been there with Eve to help her out. It's interesting how this how how the serpent got Eve Eve when he was when she was alone. Why not Adam when when he was alone? But Eve when she was alone because Adam wasn't their protector and look out for him. But here in chapter back to chapter four, as you're talking about the 
you know, the question of, okay, is this sin just held to Adam and Eve or is it going to spread? Of course, we see it's beginning to spread. And if for, uh, uh, for people to think, you know, uh, you know this, this is just reserved for them, uh, chapter 4 is very, very clear on the progression of how that sin is increasing in a, in a horrendous way, in a violent way in all of mankind. Um, and you see this even through chapter 6. Uh, with with the, with the flood coming, so and I, I would probably say this. I'd probably add this, uh, uh, gentlemen. I, I'd probably suggest that number one, the text says she gave to Adam who was with her, and he ate. So that it may not be his absence at all. In fact, it may be an absent-mindedness with an all-too-real present. In other words, he has checked out and doesn't care emotionally. Um, uh, He's more bent to take the risk, if you will, with precious things, particularly with the commands of God. But when we say that sin has spread, I want to be very careful in saying this. Uh, Sin demands real estate. Uh, It does not negotiate for real estate. Um, And how much real estate does it demand? Uh, If one gives it an inch, it will insist upon a mile. That's what chapter 4 is about. Because if Adam and Eve thought that their transgression was horrendous, they had no clue how horrendous it was till they get to chapter number 4. They have no clue how horrendous it is till they get to chapter number 5. And certainly, having lived within just a few years, a few hundred years of the flood, they have no idea how horrendous it is until the emotional disposition and mayhem of the human populace just grows to such a grotesque degree that God himself has to, in horrible judgment, bring it to at least a, a quarantined slowdown, not a stop in completion. Uh, something that I'd like to mention that I think is particularly interesting that I, that I definitely just want to park on for a moment. As I want to say that when he puts a mark on Cain of protection in chapter number four, that this is not an ethnic mark. Uh, There are some scholars who have in years gone by argued that the mark that he put on Cain was a mark of blackness of skin. That was literally an argument that was placed on there. And I I want to suggest that uh, this is not what's going on. In fact, it is the goal of God before this that we should have multicultures. In in fact, let me just pause really quick and turn over to the book of Acts. It it looks, John, like we're not going to get to chapter (laughs) 5. We are, I promise. I've I've been out for a while. It's good to have you back, CL. Thank you. (laughs) In Acts chapter number 17... In the midst of his uh, address at Mars, Mars Hill, um, uh, uh, while engaging an apologetic uh, based upon uh, a, a phrase that's on one of their altars to the unknown God, if you will, lest they had missed a God in servitude amongst the plethora of gods that they have, uh, Paul is going to take that as his catalyst, as his subject, if you will. And it's from that standpoint that he's going to address the people. And he literally says in verse number 26, and he, the pronoun refers back to the antecedent, the proper God, made from one man that is going back to Adam, if you will, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, 
as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. What's the argument? This mark is not, in fact, a mark of blackness. It's not a darker melanin tint, if you will, so as to look at he and everyone who has darker skin as bearing the marks of Cain through bearing a mark of dark, detestable skin. Uh, Rather, this is a mark of mercy or compassion, a mark that is given in direct request to Cain, Lord, this punishment is too great for me. Surely anyone who sees me will immediately kill me. And God puts a merciful or a compassionate mark upon Cain so that no one will in fact kill him. They will allow God to exact vengeance upon Cain rather than being vigilantes and exacting uh, vengeance or revenge upon Cain for themselves. Just And just a quick thing. It's interesting that the mark was given to Cain only, not to his, his own children and descendants. So that's a good point you know, that you're that you're bringing with that because there's been pretty um, terrible teaching and theology on false theology, bad theology, bad understanding of scripture of, you know, that why there's different ethnicities and whatnot. And it's not because of Cain's sin. It has nothing to do with that. One work says uh, uh, when it seeks to speak of a proposed preexistence of man, and I don't, certainly don't purport that, but one work says uh, that there were those who opposed uh, uh, Elohim and uh, opposed uh, uh, Jesus Christ's plan, and they were born with dark skin uh, or black skin, literally. And uh, then those who were on the side of Jesus Christ were born with white, delightsome skin. Uh, this kind of horrendous teaching has led to uh, a, a an opposite position of liberation theology so that salvation is depicted purely through uh, uh, the freedom that man has in civil rights movements or freedom from oppression. And I think both of those extreme ends are are not, first of all, uh, born or birthed from Scripture. Uh, and secondarily, they misunderstand Scripture. And so I just thought it's pretty important uh, to mention that. But now to verse number 17 and on, which we can summarize rather quickly. <laughs> One individual. Sure, shall we go and have a cup of tea? Yes. <laughs> a cup of tea and scones? Yeah. One individual asks the question uh, where did Cain get his wife from? And I think it's important to note that uh, Cain is able to move into uh, 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 this area, but he has relations with his wife um, in verse number 17. And his wife actually, at this time, um, actually comes from his sister. Uh, John, would you like to pick up on that? Well, yeah. I mean, in fact, chapter 5 talks about how, how Adam had other sons. You know, Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters as well. The, and the point of the scripture here is is they're not telling us about every single son or daughter of Adam and, of, of, uh, of Adam and Eve. Just particular uh, sons uh, of Adam and Eve, uh, particularly to trace the line back, uh, all the way up through to Shem and then to Abraham eventually. So it's focusing our attention on two particular sons of, of Adam. Here it's Cain, of course, he's going to marry, he has to marry sister, you know, and this time it's not a problem because uh, the, the Mosaic law is not given about about forbidding that, and my understanding is that, you know, biologically it's okay early on. Later on there's some, you know, genetic uh, defects that can happen, but here you'd have to. I mean, just, <laughs> nobody else you're supposed to <laughs> eventually be a sister, but um, 
you know, and there's those questions, you know, um, that that come up as 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 far as that. But but later on here in in the the rest of this chapter, uh, uh, we have other descendants of 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 Cain, and we have actually a genealogy of given that's like ten generations that are given, and the, one of the focuses is on is on, is on um, certain individuals of Cain. Uh, including King, King himself, who were very um, resourceful, you know, with uh, Cain built a city for his son Enoch, you know, and 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 uh, various other descendants like uh, Jabal and, and others who who were good with working with you know iron or you know different instruments and and music and all that, and they had good advances in technology. At the same time, though, we have advances in technology. You have advances in violence as well. And the point of the text here. Uh, is that is well one of the points of the text is that the sinfulness that's growing in them is not their their hearts are becoming more and more violent and worse uh, towards one another and towards uh, towards God Just, even if, even the fact that they are becoming better technological. Uh, environment. I'm sorry. I, I just for the uh, listeners' sake, can you just define how you're using technology in this context? <clears throat> well, for example, if you look at um, uh, chapter uh, chapter four and say verse twenty, it talks about various sons. Adab gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and 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 wrote and had livestock. Verse twenty one. His brother was. Jubal, he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the, and the pipe music. He was a musician. And then uh, Zil, Zilla, verse 22, gave birth to Tubal Cain, and he was a forger of implement, implements of bronze and iron. And so you have these different areas that are being developed, um, and for, we have to ask why are these being mentioned? There's, there's a contrast between what they're doing as far as what they're uh, giving birth to or what they're doing, uh, I call it technology, it's, for lack of a better word, but the contrast with their accomplishments with their evil deeds that are going on. Because then the very next line talks about Lamech, who uh, takes you know two wives, and he's very vengeful and very, very um, – he's more murderous than Cain ever was. There's a contrast between those things that are going on. And you see that in the world today. Our world is very technology advanced. I mean we're talking on the internet right now. We're talking you – know, we have computers. We have great medicines. We're not at, and at the same time, there's great violence in the world. You cannot turn on the computer or newspaper without seeing horrendous violence at the same time of great advances. So there's this, this contrast that because man can advance technology or technologically or scientifically or whatever, it doesn't change the man's heart. Well, see, is, isn't that an argument during the 1800s that the Enlightenment age will solve our ills? Oh, yeah. uh, that the technological advance, I think it's kind of interesting that the innovator of or inventor of the locomotive system is at the same time on the tracks and they had not perfected the brake system at that point. And so as he's talking about how this techno technological age will lead us into a superhuman state and into such advances as will progress us past some of our current maladies. He's run over by the train that uh, he is said to be the father of and invents. And isn't that really the way that technology has worked for humanity? And, and people will propose from this. They will say, well, you know, first of all, this was an early unintelligent society. Not so. Uh, when we talk about technological advances to uh, uh, directly answer your question, David, and the audience's question, um, when we speak of that, we're talking 
talking about technological advances over time, a progression of sorts. But Daniel argues this, that men will become more wicked and more wise, and that there will be times when information will be at light speed. We may very well be on the cusp of realizing that because every day we're making technological advances. And yet what I offer to you is in the day of such advances, men are becoming more wicked and more wise in their ability to do more evil because evil is not solved by our intelligentsia. Uh, it is a heart problem. Uh, wickedness is bound up in our hearts even as children. And according to Jeremiah 17, the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? You're, you're using the word heart versus mind. Uh, I'm using the terms heart and mind synonymously, where the seat of the emotions are, where the nature of the human species lie. They're in that uh, elusive place that God has placed within uh, the human being. There, there is the nature that stands opposed to God and is contaminated to a degree that none of us could really speak intelligently to could i possibly here just move on a bit um to 23 uh, lamech said to his wives ada and zillah listen to my voice you wives of lamech give heed to my speech and it goes on and you may want to to talk to that i'm but i'm more interested that we are moving on so so far here and now we're at the end of chapter four and now adam comes back in again Yes, he does. Let, let me make mention of a couple of things because I think there's a couple of deliberate reasons why you have this mentioned. First of all, this is going to lay the root or the foundation or groundwork for the Torah and particularly within the commandments, uh, uh, the, the Ten Commandments and the 613 Commandments. But let me just mention a couple of interesting things that our listeners will find, find very, very intriguing at this point. First of all, there is the biblical interpretive rule of the law of first mention. Whenever you look at something and it's mentioned for the first time, perk up, take notice. It is of the utmost importance. No one before this time has been mentioned as having more than one wife, which argues this, that this man was a greater degreed sinner than even our earlier sinners. Why? Because not only does he seem to take murder to a higher degree, he also takes us to an area or arena of polygamy. Uh, this is not God's suggestion. This is not God's idea. Uh, this seems to be birth or born, particularly in Scripture with Lamech. Before that, how many wives did men have? If you look earlier in Genesis chapter number one, he made one man to be with one woman. If you look in chapter number two, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. If you look in chapter number four, uh, Cain has relations with his wife in verse number 17. But now you get to Lamech, Lamech rather, and the progression of sin is so that the lust of this man's heart increases on the holy institution that God has made so that one woman will not suffice this man. He now stretches it. And can you imagine the emotional mayhem that's in this home with having to live with another woman? So he stretches it to this point. Secondarily, not only does he stretch it to this point, but this young man had simply wounded him. 
That's why later on we're going to have to have an eye for an eye. In other words, it's got to be just. The revenge has to be just. It has to be equal. It can't be over the top. He's very proud because he says, listen, this guy wounded me. He simply wounded me. And here's the celebration. I took his life. Is that not a dreadful characteristic of the human being, the eye for the eye? Uh, the, the eye for the eye is the control factor that God institutes. In other words, what he says is, yes, must there be some uh, checks and balances? Absolutely. But the checks and balances have to put stipulations or limits. You cannot take an eye and take a life for an eye. You have to have checks and balances. It should be equivocal. Well, the, the punishment should fit the crime. It's the, it's the scales of justice. You know, If you lose an eye, an eye is required. Here he is – he is somebody who wounds him superficially, and he responds with, with murderous, you know, events. So, and and this is the the degree to which uh, to which Lamech is a picture of mankind at this time, and even mankind today, where the bounds of sin or the limitations have been pushed. If if it's not enough to just murder for you know for well, there's no ju- I mean for whatever causes, it's murder for any cause. If you can push the limitations of marrying one woman, why not marry two or, or more than that? It holds no bounds. It, it's, there isn't anything holding him back. In Lamech's life, you see nothing holding him back. And that's the problem that we see in, in Cain's line and a picture of mankind's line is that sin is that way, is that there's no bounds. There's, 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 there are things that people do today. And you're like, how in the world? What, what is, why do they do such things? Is there anything holding him back? And that this is a picture of that we are not – uh, as great as we think we are, because because sin can make us so depraved and so corrupt that we will do, we, we will do the most horrible things to people. This is not without hope, though. Okay, uh, all this this when you see the horrible things that were going on here in chapter four and the horrible things going on in the world today, there, it's not without hope because the the hope is still there that was promised in Genesis three um, uh, three uh, fifteen and sixteen or fifteen rather. <laughs> Uh, and that's where you have Adam being introduced at the end of chapter 4 uh, to introduce then Seth, who's going to be a godly line. Through his line, uh, there will become the seed of the Messiah will come eventually through his line. So you see this, uh, this, this uh, antithesis, this, this contrast between the horrible events of, of chapter 4 and the horrible things of, of mankind's sin – with the hope that God still has in bringing redemption. Can I just enter here? Because it's not about a confusion, but I'd like to clarify a couple of things and and CL, you you didn't actually answer my question because we we didn't get to... (laughs) Yes, why does Adam... We we didn't get to verse 25, but let let me, uh, in my naivety, just come in here for a second. It is appearing to me, and this this is common sense, that as we travel through these chapters and we, we travel through the Torah uh, and even up to the point uh, of the flood, things are getting worse and worse and worse. Things yes. are just compiling uh, uh, constantly. Um, That's the point. And then even after Noah, uh, look what happens to Noah, uh, you know, uh, and, and he falls again. What is this saying about the Torah as a whole? And the reason why I'm saying this is that I am seeing that the chapters that we're talking about now are absolutely paramount because they are essentially summarizing the complete mess that we see all the way through Genesis and beyond. I, first of all, you're absolutely accurate. 
And and I'm also and I'm also being very blunt in that, and I don't mean to be, but but you would agree it's a it's good to point out that we just see man going from worse to worse. A- absolutely, um, I, I don't think we should be in denial. I think we ought to be forthright, and in being forthright. It demands transparency. It demands the strictest honesty. And as such, what we see as a result of sin, um, first of all, it doesn't take long. Second, it's absolutely horrendous. Third, uh, it makes out of men what we would not fathom of them at all. I, could you imagine such such horror being reared in the first family of all places? I, I would think that it would at least be in distant cousins or relatives or things of that nature. But uh, this takes no time at all to spread uh, as as a pandemic. Not simply an epidemic. This is a pandemic. This is worldwide. There's, there's no one so erudite as to miss this. There's no one so uh, lowly as to miss this. There's no one uh, so wealthy as to miss this. No pauper uh, misses this. This is a reality in the heart of mankind and wherever they are. They cannot escape the sin principle. And I think it, it's meant for us to be struck with that. But in comes the answer uh, to your question, why the mention of Adam again? Because what we're going to look at is the darkness is dissipated by the hope that is brought through light's appearance. And what we're going to see is we're going to see that though it appears that all is hopeless amongst mankind, God is not without an answer to this. And he's going to, even in this scenario, begin to bring about the line through which eventually and ultimately Messiah will come and will render our hopeless situation full of the hope of what the promise of the Savior brings. Yeah, I think it's interesting just to proceed to the end of, of chapter 4. And, and, and may I just, before you do, may I yeah. just say this? Yes. Um, from a literary point of view, uh, chap, uh, verse 26, To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. I was just going to read the same You're verse. with me, John. I'll lead you to it. <laughs> Thank you very much, and I'll say goodbye. <laughs> well, it's interesting is in the midst of all this darkness and wickedness and sinfulness going on, you have finally at the time of Seth, you have people calling on the name of the Lord. And what's interesting is that, uh, yes, God is not leaving without certain lights, and you know Seth and uh, will be among them, but... It's in the midst of this darkness, in this chaotic, chaotic time, where maybe God is stepping back and saying, okay, if you let the sin run its course, this, look how bad it gets. You get to the point where you have no other answers. Your, your, your in- intelligence, your technology aren't changing you. Things are getting worse. And all you now have left to do is turn to God. And that's exactly, I think, what's going on at this time. Because actually, the, 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 uh, the Hebrew indicates they began to call, the, the word here for call is to call and worship. They began to worship publicly God in the midst of all this. Because God, they turned back to God uh, because they had no other answers. Things got really bad. Is, is there a message in that CL, uh, and I don't know what the context is, and I don't know what the sermon was, but there is a time in your life when you know you're in trouble, 
where you have to uh, sit back and you have to let God do the work for you. You have to let God guide you divinely. Yes, this is going to lead to reflection. And this is going to lead to dependence. It's going to necessitate dependence because this cannot be solved by the mental prowess or muscularity of mankind. It is clearly outside of man's hands at this point. Um, they only become contributors to the evil. Uh, if there's something that's going to happen of a positive nature, God has to step in. I think it's very interesting that before this there was a means to interact with God on some sort of early or primitive sacrificial system. We, of course, see that in Genesis chapter number 3 where God, in fact, clothes Adam and Eve. Uh, we also see that in chapter number 4 where Cain and Abel are bringing an offering. But now this is outside of the sacrificial system where prayer is invoked and there's some kind of interaction with God where men are calling upon the name of the Lord and asking that his character would be realized in their midst. While that's going on, you progress into chapter number five into a genealogical structure or a structure with names for a purpose, but I'd like you to notice a repetitive phrase within chapter number five. I like to call this personally, uh, I should coin the, the, the terminology, the obituary of the Bible, because you're wondering, um, Okay, does God know what he's talking about? Well, listen, since chapter number three, we got kicked out of the garden. Well, we're more inclined to think that God knows what he's talking about. But does God know what he's talking about, really? Well, okay, since the first murder uh, and the first grave, and uh, I can't imagine what those parents' tears were like. Uh, sure, God knows what he's talking about. But, you know, maybe this will all get better. Well, with Lamech, uh, does God really know what he's talking about? Okay, things are starting to get bad, but also culture is improving. But now people are starting to get older. It's, it's, uh, it's starting to progress. And as they're getting older, you look at this repetitive phrase, and no matter who they are, you see this phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And there's one point of relief in the text with a man by the name of Enoch. And with this gentleman by the name of Enoch, in chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, and we'll say more about this in just a moment, he walks with God faithfully over a period of years, and God uh, takes him in a translation of sorts. But after that, you pick up with this obituary phraseology again, and he died, and he died, and he died. And here's the reality. God is a just God. The sentence is going to be realized. Death is going to take place, not only spiritually, but physiologically. And the concept is men will be brought to their knees in submission and in acquiescence to the will of God, the word of God, and the sentence that God has placed upon man as a result of sin. All of us, no matter how many surgeries we have, no matter how much Botox we have, uh, no, no matter how much nip and tuck we have, no matter how much money we have, we can freeze ourselves for 50 grand or we can have our head lopped off for 10 grand. It doesn't matter who we are. The principle and the sentence of sin yet remains. We die as a result of being opposite to and uh, uh, on the other side of 
God. Now, us as human beings, then, is it fair to say that that is, in a way, a threat? Uh, the aforementioned uh, statement that you had uh, you had made there, and, and should we fear God? Oh, that's such a good question. Shall I take that, John, or you want I, that? I, I don't know if it's a threat. You've got 24 seconds. <laughs> I don't know if it's a threat other than just to film what God said. God said, if you, you're, you get to this tree, you're going to die. And now it's the physical aspect is coming true, and that's being passed on. It's just a fact of, he said, this is a fact of life. A result of sin is death. Everything, the death you see around the world, people getting old and <laughs> And, you know, we wanted to use uh, different technologies to make us look younger. We're going to die, you know. But there's still hope. With the, the fact of Enoch of becoming one who does not die is the one who walks with God, who has this intimate fellowship with God. Though death is a reality of life, at the same time, you have somebody who's like Enoch, who's a picture of those who, uh, who will go on living with God. Very early, God shows power over death. In Enoch. But let me just stop and say something because now I know we're not going to make it out of chapter five. I apologize very early, but I promise you. You are fired. You're going to be so <laughs> – I know. Okay, so this is the last one. Got to make it good. Ready? You're going to love this. This is important, gentlemen, because if I could tell you how many questions spring from this area of scripture without people knowing it, everything from why did my father or mother have to die of cancer? Why was there an earthquake here or there? Why was there this or that that was tragic? Why are there so many hungry people? Here's the reality. That indirectly springs from this event, the fall in Genesis 3. Because the concept is it may not even be just an immediate, a direct judgment of God upon an immediate sin that a society has committed or that an individual has committed. The concept is, and you have many individuals who will say, there was an earthquake here, there was a tidal wave here, there was a volcano eruption here, there was this or that. You name the tragedy. And their concept is, if God were a good God, why would he allow that to happen? Well, let's stop. If God were a good God, first of all, I'd expect for him to be honest. Genesis chapter number two records the transparency or honesty of God. If you choose opposite of me, you're opening Pandora's box and you're going to have a world in which death is possible, cancer is possible, heart attacks, strokes are possible, earthquakes are possible. And that's going to be a direct result of choosing opposite of God. And, and the reality is we're yet living within the repercussion of that first decision to go opposite of God. So it doesn't mean these people over here were so evil. These people over here were so good. These people over here were so horrendous. The reality is we're living in a fallen world and God has been honest about that with us and told us when you choose opposite of me, these are the things that are possible and probable within a fallen system. Well, in that case then, the, the, the statement in these immediate chapters that the human being was made in the image of God uh, is countered because by the time you get to chapter 4, chapter 5 and you move forwards we're, we're not really in the image of God now are we? Oh yes no, we, we are. are the image of God still exists but it is heavily marred and broken yeah. so that we take the best as the author Hokema says and we mm. make it the worst uh, uh, so that we have all of those uh, similarities that God has given us to himself 
and we distort and contort them like a broken mirror so that there is a distortion. So we take the brilliance that God has given us and we choose instead to do premeditated murder or we choose to do violence or we choose to have illicit, inordinate thoughts or behaviors. So it's not that it no longer exists. In fact, that's one of the reasons why in chapter number nine, we are not to murder one another because it is in the image of God yet existing that man has been made. So in other words, it's not until Jesus Christ that we see a, a human being completely in the image of God. Well, 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 the image of God incorporates both a, a form and a function. You, get, you have a gifting where we are gifted with abilities, intelligence, and the choice to how to use that gifting. I can use my intelligence to do well to people or to do harm to people. And when you get in the cross with, with Christ... God does a work in a person's heart to begin to show them, to change them, to use those giftings for his glory and for benefit of, of people. Whereas before the cross or before um, somebody comes to Jesus, um, they, are, uh, they don't always use those giftings uh, for God's glory. I, I'm simply trying to put it in its, it, define it in its absolute context, the statement in the image of God. If we define it in its context, this is what it argues. It argues that we are more like God than any creature in the universe. He has left that gift with us. But that gift having been left with us is marred or is broken or is distorted as a result of the fall. For the believer, according to Colossians, that is being renewed. It's being fixed through our relationship with the Father through Christ Jesus. But does the unbeliever have it? Yes, but how do they use it in functionality? They use it in a distorted fashion so that it is not used for the good. It is used rather for the worse. But what does this argue? This argue that an individual need not be a believer in Jesus to have value. There is inherent value within that person. But are they going to function in a way that demonstrates that high level of value? And are they going to function in a way that causes them to look more like God. No, they're going to function in a way that is opposed to God with the very gift that God gave them. Let me give this analogy to summarize it. Let us say that I give you a screwdriver and my goal in giving you that screwdriver was so that you could be a benefit and fix things. You have the screwdriver. But let's say in your mind, you decide that you're going to go wayward. And so in going wayward, you take that screwdriver, put it down, and you bend it, okay? Now it's not in its original form, however you yet have it. And with that screwdriver, you go about using it not to fix things, but to do vandalism. Here's the concept. You yet have what I've given you, but what I've given you has been marred and has been distorted. And instead of taking it to do the good that I intended you to do it with, now you're breaking things instead of fixing things. That's the depiction. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, yes. I think so. Does it make sense to you, John? <laughs> Great analogy. <laughs> <laughs> we are uh, clearly <coughs> running out of time here, and uh, CL is, is uh, about to fall off his chair. He's hacking away. Let me do this. Uh, let's say that we have started uh, Genesis 5, and I, I thought description of that uh, as the obituary of the Bible was fantastic, and, and that will uh, uh, commence our next program. Can I ask this question to lead us out, to round us out? Uh, John, um, let me ask you this question. 
How is it, as human beings, for our listeners, how is it that we can, to our best ability, return to the state of Adam and Eve pre-fall? Oh, we can't do that. I mean, apart from Christ. I'm not sure that we want to because what yeah. we have in Christ is far better than what we had before the fall. Yeah. We don't want to return back to the garden in that sense. In fact, and just to add what CL adds, um, what we have in Christ, what believers have in Christ, is something far superior to what Adam and Eve even had. Adam and Eve, were, before, they, before the fall, they were an age of innocence. What we have in Christ is something far better. We have not only the sinlessness of Adam and Eve before the fall, but we also have a righteousness of Christ that Adam and Eve did not have. Uh, if, if you imagine, well, Christ is God, right? So Adam and Eve had God. They God, had God. God was there. He was in the shadows, right? They had. <coughs> excuse me. I'm, uh, Shall I pick up John? No, I'm, I, I apologize for that, but. Uh, uh, they had something they had something we have something that they did not have and that is a standing before god that is that is not only a standing before god of, of being righteous but Christ's very own righteousness that that they could never have in other words imagine that you have a blackboard that's that's painted black or chalked up black and that's a picture of sin in man's heart and you erase that blackboard so it's now white it's a whiteboard let's say now it's white again that was Adam and Eve's heart before the fall. But now imagine you take that whiteboard and you add on a masterpiece like the Mona Lisa. That's what a Christian has in Christ. They don't just have a, a clean slate. They have a masterpiece of, of uh, God's favor with them. And they also have, we also have um, the ability uh, to, to follow and to please them in a way that Adam and Eve never had or at least after they fall, they didn't have. So we don't want to return back to the garden in that sense. Yes, we want to return the garden in the sense of having this close intimacy with God. Yes, but that is exactly true. But we have something far superior than what they did. I would probably say when we were talking about Adam and Eve in this pre-fall state, there was the capacity of the fall. That capacity of the fall is removed for the believer post the resurrection we will no longer be capable of even entertaining a fall, not because we will be zombies, as it were, but because we will be liberated from this trial state of sorts. Uh, when we're dealing with Adam and Eve, uh, their, their stay in that state was a contingent stay based upon their obedience. Uh, Ours is an unqualified stay in our state based upon the obedience of Christ. So because Christ has perfectly pleased the Father and because our hope is in Christ so that we are positioned secure in him, we can never be removed from that secure state as it were. And so we're not under trial. So we won't get to heaven and we won't have the new earth. And suddenly somebody will say, you know, I think I'm going to eat from a tree again and I'm going to cause a fall. That cannot happen in that state or stage. And, and it's interesting in the book of Revelation, the only tree that we see there is the tree of life. There's no longer any more testing of 
will you follow God anymore? Because we've already made a decision. If a follower of Christ has made his decision, and now sort of God firms that up and says, okay, you've made your choice. No more making these choices of whether to – because you've already made that choice. Now the only thing is to enjoy the life that has been given to you. And the, the picture, the tree of life that was in Genesis 3 is now back and now going to be in, in Revelation at the end of the Bible uh, with, um, with this promise of eternal life for, for believers. So – Absolutely. Let me let me let me give a summary that I think that will be of a devotional nature to our hearers. Um, let's be very clear: none of us control sin in our hearts. If we give sin again an inch, it's going to take a mile. Uh, here's the reality: no matter who we are, we are we're all sick with it, sick in the most fatal fashion. Um, it's progressing in our own hearts. It's progressing in our own families. It's progressing in our own states, countries, and you name it. What's the cure? The cure is to rely upon he who removes sin from the heart. That is the person of Jesus Christ and his work alone. As such, our goal is to daily progress in him, to grow in a fellowship with him that causes us to be not only more pleasing to him, but more beneficial to all of those who are round about us as our neighbors on a regular basis. So sin is demanding, but the grace of God is also demanding. And where sin seems like it grows more, grace is far larger overwhelming and much more uh, um, fit to the task. So I want to remind our listeners of that. Don't play with sin. It's not the ledge from which you take an adventurous fall only to recover. Rather, thrust yourself into the grace of God because it's in the framework of that spreading grace that we're going to realize what life really is meant to be in Jesus. C.O. Mitchell, John Core, thank you uh, for joining me today and joining our listeners. We'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. And to our listeners, uh, we do hope that you have enjoyed this uh, post-fall narrative. Uh, we have now completed Chapter 4, I believe. Next uh, week we will be taking on the challenge of, uh, of Chapter 5. We hope that you have uh, enjoyed this uh, as much as we have, wherever you are in this world. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management 